my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Whether it's athletics, whether it's cooking, whether it's comedy, whether it's rap, whether it's music, whether it's classical, whether it's jazz, I think that there's a core universal creative substrate in the brain that allows us to do all of these things. Depending on the nature of the task and how spontaneous it is, it may phase in and out. But from my experiments, I'm convinced that one of the core attributes is the ability to turn off your brain and how quickly and how deeply you can do that. That's neuroscientist Charles Lim. He's combined his ability to visualize a working brain with his passion for music, especially jazz, in a search for the origins of human creativity. He's now extending his research beyond jazz musicians to comedians and even rappers. And the surprising finding is that being spontaneous and creative depends on using less of your brain, not more. I'm really looking forward to talking with you because what your work involves is what I've devoted my life to, which is creativity and improvisation as well. As a scientist, how did you move into creativity? A lot of people don't think they go together. Yeah, no, thank you for the question. I have to tell you that for me, as, um, you know, the anomaly might actually be that I became a scientist. Uh, you know, I, I started out my life as a um, somebody who was deeply, deeply obsessed with music. Um, you know, it's always been my true kind of, you know, if there's one thing that really grips me more than anything else, it's music. And so as a scientist, I was studying hearing. And in specific, I was looking at the inner ear. And so I was a surgeon that was training in hearing restoration. And so the more you look at the ear, the more you realize that you're never going to really understand something like music by looking at the end organ. And so naturally, I started thinking that I had to to sort of channel my efforts or focus myself towards the brain, which is receiving the information from the ear. So after I finished my surgical training, I went down to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, and I spent about three years learning how to do functional neuroimaging of the brain. And this is kind of where it all began, because I was just sitting... um, almost in a windowless room inside the NIH with access to a brain scanner and maybe a little bit more time on my hands than I had been used to. And I myself was a kind of, a, I would call myself a struggling jazz, amateur jazz musician. So I had what, what's a your saxophone. Instrument? saxophone was my primary instrument. Right. And so I was somebody who had known about improvisation just as a musician. You know, I, I, I had been doing this since I was in high school. And so I knew very intuitively that my 
mode of thinking or being or living or feeling changed when I started improvising. There's just a different, um, you're in a different state of mind. How did and, it change? Well, for me, I felt that a couple of things happened. One was there was a, um, an immersion. So a, a, a loss of the sort of self-consciousness of doing something like a performance. So for me, especially, especially if I was improvising alone, just for example, I would just go play in a stairwell or something like that that was echoic and hear the reverb of my instrument and nobody would be around me. There you can lose yourself in a way that doesn't happen that often in um, too many ordinary uh, life experiences, although it can certainly happen in, in certain things. But I found myself, time passes, you get a certain, um, I think you're getting to know yourself better while you're also doing this complex task of playing an instrument. And, and for me, it was, I think, very um, profound as a, as a teenager to understand that I could generate something that I'd never played before. I had that same experience in terms of improvising as an actor a, a couple of years after I began doing it on a regular basis. It changed me as an actor, and it also changed me as a person. For the first time, I became comfortable making small talk. Up until then, as soon as I met somebody, I'd want to talk about the meaning of life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just to riff with the other person can be pleasurable if you let yourself do it. Yeah, no, there's, a, there's such a self-consciousness and such a notion of being correct or right or wrong and being judged and evaluated. And so it was nice. To, and I, I, I think I'm my harshest critic when it comes to things like music. Um, you know, you, you grow up listening to John Coltrane and all of a sudden when you're trying to play saxophone, you don't sound so good. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I felt like I was starting to understand that the creative mind was this unique brain state and that maybe you could get to understand that brain state using sort of standard scientific approaches that had been kind of off limits for scientists for many, many years. So you would put musicians in an MRI machine, but, a, but not the typical MRI machine that takes, in a way, just takes pictures of your plumbing, but one that is a functional MRI where you can actually perform some operations, do something or say something, and you get changes in the brain during that behavior. Is that roughly it? Exactly correct. So functional MRI scan is a modification of a regular MRI scan. So MRI scan is best for looking at high-resolution anatomy, um, whereas functional MRI is looking at changes in the deoxygenation signal in the brain. So when your brain is active in a specific area, it's consuming... Um, hemoglobin, uh, specifically oxyhemoglobin, and it's con using the oxygen, converting it to deoxyhemoglobin, which can be detected by a big magnet because it happens to be a ferrous uh, compound. And so the deoxyhemoglobin is being detected and your magnet can localize where in the brain the deoxyhemoglobin seem to be rising um, or falling. I think that's, a, that's an important thing for the rest of us to get because a lot of us talk about what parts of the brain are lighting up but the, the, the brain, the, the neurons in the brain themselves don't light up. Correct. It's an indirect method of measuring brain activity, but what you're really measuring is blood flow, ah. and in particular, blood utilization. So a part of the brain that's active is using more blood. Now, when you render it sort of using an imaging software program, you'll see it as a hotspot. 
that's not a literal hotspot on the brain. That's that's like if you look at the brain physically, it's not brighter. It's not lighting up. It's just consuming more oxygen. Right. So a musician is in your scanner. How do you know when they're doing something creative or when they're just lying there? Yes. So this is part of the, I think, the nature of designing an experiment that's not just scientifically rigorous, but also artistically true to who they are or what they do. And so what we decided to do in our first round of experiments was the most basic jazz behavior, which is to play the blues. And so musicians would come in, they're lying lying down in the scanner, as you said. Now, the most important thing is that their head remains still. Other than their head remaining still, their body can be doing pretty much just about anything. And then you have to set up the experiment in a way that there is both an active condition of interest, but also a comparator, kind of what we call a control condition. And in the case of creativity, we wanted to have a control condition that reflected the complexity, sophistication, and neurologic demands of actually playing music just in a non-improvised way. So the natural comparison was to look at memorized music. So the musician comes in and they're either playing memorized music, which is usually the melody or the head of the piece, or they're improvising on the chord changes. And so the nice thing about that, in a sense, jazz lends itself very nicely to scientific experimentation because that structure is exactly how you would do a regular experiment. And then the lower level motoric and auditory features of you're still playing music, even if it's memorized versus improvised. So it's still a very sophisticated activity. So it's a nice way to control for all of the things that your brain must do just in order to play music without it being creative. And in a way, by subtracting that out, you're left. what you have left over is almost like um, creativity uh, in a bottle just by looking at the brain activity. So what differences do you see between the moment when the musician is playing something from memory or improvising. So there's a number of changes that occur. And keep in mind, we're looking at really professional, high-level jazz musicians. Um, There's so many different varieties of this and so many different subtypes of this. But in the professional, truly high-level musicians we're looking at, the first, I think, most important thing we see is that their prefrontal cortex, and that's a vast portion of the brain where things like conscious self-monitoring and effortful planning reside. These parts of the brain are being deactivated when the musician begins improvising. And that is very interesting when you think about this idea that in improvisation, you kind of have to let go. You don't want to be overly self-conscious. You don't want to be effortfully planning what comes next. If you do that, in a sense, you've lost the game. Like you're you're no longer really improvising if you're you're effortfully planning um, step by step. Uh, I think in order for improvisation to work right, you actually have to surrender that um, tendency to want to control all of your output. We used to say when we were doing an improvising session that improvising is not writing on your feet. It's not deciding what to say, editing it in your head, and then saying it, which is more like a writing process. But you, but you have right. to be free to let it emerge on its own. So the quieting of the prefrontal cortex during improvisation on the part of a musician is accomplishing the resistance to editing himself, the resistance to say, how am I doing? Is this the right way to go? 
Should I go a different way? Right? All of those impulses are calmed. I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, in a, in a way, the brain is trying to get out of its own way yeah. to allow this flow of novel ideas to be unimpeded by the need to evaluate the idea. So, you know, when, if you're if you're a jazz musician playing, you know, improvising a solo, you don't want to be judging the correctness or or um, success of each note that's coming out. It's it's totally detrimental to the idea of just playing whatever you are playing. Um, you know, and I think this whole idea of spontaneous creativity versus more protracted creativity. You know, as you said, writing is a highly creative process, but it's more iterative. Mm -hmm. It does involve a little bit more, I think, um, sort of reaction to what you've put down and then um, criticizing, editing, repairing it, improving it. And then you kind of, by that form of of process, come up with this creative product. But spontaneous improvisation is probably among the most immediate art forms that you can have, where there is no second chance. You you, you do it and it's there. The process, the iterative process that you're referring to in writing while it does take place over a longer period of time than spontaneous improvisation, really, I think, involves the same process. I was told this by one of the most successful television writers in television history. He was going through a patch of writer's block. He couldn't get past a sentence without having to fix it. He was editing while he was trying to get things down in a flow, and the flow is halted. He locked himself in a hotel room to write the first act of a play and wasn't going to come out for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they carried him out on a stretcher, the poor guy, and he had written one sentence on the page. But what he found worked for him was to tape record his writing after that and hold himself to the rule that he wouldn't try to edit anything until he saw the transcript of the recording. And he was able to write vast amounts quickly and creatively. And that sounds like a confirmation of what you're saying, and the sort of deliberate attempt to quiet the editing part of the brain. I think so. But, you know, I also would add or kind of characterize it that different art forms require different forms of creativity at different times. You know, it may be that at the root of it all, the most creative inspirational moment happens in writing that is very similar to what a jazz musician is experiencing. But I think that there's something, for example, writing a novel over five years, I think is a very different creative process than scat singing 12 bars of a blues. And you know, that it's, it's one and done. There is no going back. It's, it's finished. And you're not expecting to sort of perfect what you yeah, just did. That, that, I see what you mean. Now that, in, that's in, certainly true. Yeah. And I, I think in the case of something like writing a novel, all of those parts of the creative process are all valid parts of meaning. You need to, you can't just spontaneously improvise the whole novel and have it come out the way you want it to come out. There has to well, be no, no, there, this there, there second level. There has to be, in fact, many times over, you have to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. But it's the first process of exactly. getting it out, allowing yourself to put everything down that occurs uh, in an associative way without blocking it. Yeah, so if you think about it from the brain's perspective, you could imagine that the brain goes in and out of these modes you know, like you may be writing a chapter in a, in a novel and everything is coming out very, very quickly. You know, like you can write that chapter in, 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 in one hour because your brain is so well lubricated. And that situation may be much more jazz-like. 
And then like your the person you were referring to who can only write that one sentence, during those 10 days of writing that one sentence, I would imagine that that brain was very un-jazz-like, even though he was struggling to do a creative process. And so I, I think that it's there's a lot of heterogeneity to this. And I think that the mistake as a scientist would be to try to reduce human creativity down to either a sound bite or one process. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think that there are certain commonalities, regardless of genre, regardless of art form, regardless of task, there are certain core attributes that are creative and there are certain other aspects of it that are more intentional, more deliberate, more practice-oriented, more pattern-oriented. And all of these things feed into the, what ultimately emerges as a creative product. What you say about the prefrontal cortex needing to in a way, calm down or lay dormant for a while during spontaneous improvisation raises the question of whether or not you've come to suspect there are ways to help the prefrontal cortex take a nap. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're ahead of me there. I'll, I'll say this. Um, certainly there are other things that will do this. So environment will do it. Uh, mood will do it probably mood-altering things will do it. And so um, when I was at Johns Hopkins Hospital, one of the studies that we were going to do but never um, were able to complete because I wound up leaving was actually a study of the impact of psilocybin, so the active compound in hallucinogenic mushrooms, mm. on the perception of music because it's well known that when people are, are um, using psychedelics for, for whatever reason, whether therapeutic or otherwise, they will tell you that their perception of auditory stimuli are vastly different. And, you know, in these fantastical ways. And so it must be mediated through the brain that maybe in shutting down some of the conscious self-monitoring uh, mechanisms, something like a psychedelic could really unleash a form of creativity. And then there's also more mundane things. Take dreaming. You know, we're incredibly creative when we dream. If you think about your dreams, just sort of evaluate the last hundred dreams that you remember having they are not like your normal life. There, there, there is a surrealism to it. There's a, a wildness and unpredictability to it. You're like, wow, my brain came up with that. Well, how did it do that? Because you have the substrate there, but you're not consciously self-monitoring yourself while you're dreaming. And these random associations or seemingly random associations are being put together by your brain. In a way, that's the machinery, I think, of creativity taking place while you're sleeping. When we come back from our break, Charles Lim tells me how he's now extending his research to creativity in comedians and even rappers, and how the judgmental parts of the brain need to quiet down, even in athletes and creative chefs. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. 
Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Charles Lim. So far, we've talked about his studies of the brains of jazz musicians as they improvise. But he's also worked with people who improvise without the aid of a musical instrument. You've worked with not only musicians, but rappers, and I understand comedians as well. That's correct. Let me start with comedians. How did you do that? So let me tell you how that began. Um, It was fascinating, but I was uh, contacted one day by um, two organizations. One one was Second City from Chicago. Mm -hmm. And there was a a fellow there, Kelly Leonard, who had been hearing about my work and thought, you know, he keeps talking about improvisation. Well, we're doing improv too. Let me like see what the commonalities are between um, spoken improvisation, word improvisation, comedic improvisation, and jazz. And the other was a, a company in San Francisco named Speechless, where they use... Um, improvisation to teach public speaking to people that are sort of a a little bit phobic or uncomfortable with it, with the idea that you could use these kind of techniques of comedic improvisation to free your mind and to allow your your tongue to generate words a little bit more freely. And so both of these um, groups came to me and said, you know, we're, we're interested in your work. Could we pivot and look at comedians or comedic improvisation? So we designed an fMRI study where we were looking at comedians, again, very, very well-versed comedians doing these improvisational um, tasks, so to speak. And we modeled the tasks. Again, I had mentioned that we try to find um, a behavior that's natural and, and truly reflects what they do. And you know, you can imagine that being in a brain scanner is not the same as a comedy club. So how do you, how do you kind of get there? <laughs> and so we had to, um, we, we used the warm-up exercises that comedians use to kind of get in the mood. And then we made the exercises in the scanner increasingly free, meaning there's some that are very constrained, like a game like three things where you have to name three items of a specific category. That's improvisation, but within a very narrow context, ranging all the way to a completely open monologue where we say, talk about this topic, say whatever you want over the next two minutes. Um, And so we found that by doing that, we could really start to unravel some of the biological underpinnings of comedic improvisation to find that 
the brain is different depending on the degree of constraint. Now, I will say that this work has not been published yet. We're actually working on the manuscript right now, but the sort of preliminary finding is that the more open-ended the tasks are, the more likely you are to see this kind of prefrontal deactivation in comedic improvisation. If it's a very kind of focused, clearly defined or constrained task, like the three things one, you're not likely to see prefrontal deactivation. So I think it has to do with this kind of flow state idea, this idea of being in the zone where you can't really get in the zone when I say to you, hey, tell me three cereal boxes. You're going to be like, uh, you know, Captain Crunch, Frosted Flakes, Fruit And that, that's, that's sort of the end of it. Whereas if I say, tell me about, you know, tell me about uh, the ocean in two minutes where you can, you can really immerse into something in your brain, you can imagine how your brain state differs in those two contexts. I wonder how you'd react to my experience improvising using the system that Viola Spolin invented. Viola was the mother of Paul Sills, who was one of the founders of Second City. And I spent a lot of time working with Paul and Viola a little bit. And the idea there was, the thing that she contributed is that she put your attention not on how you're doing, not on what you're doing, but on accomplishing a specific task during the scene. Like you weren't allowed to say your next thing that you had to say until, for instance, you showed us another aspect of the place or the time of day. You'd show that and then you'd be free to interact with the other actor. So in a way, you weren't quieting the prefrontal cortex, you were putting it to work on something else. Yes. It was like a distraction in a sense. Yeah. And then things came out of you that you didn't expect. There's probably a lot to that idea. In fact, maybe that's why some of the games that the comedians use to warm up do in fact sort of impose a kind of artificial constraint on it so that you're not um, so open-ended that actually Mm -hmm. like having that more goal-oriented version of creativity and then using that as a launch pad can be very powerful. And so um, when they're teaching, so I went to a class, Second City class because I wanted to understand how they train somebody who's novice. And that's essentially what they do. First of all, you have to embrace the risk of it. And I think a lot of this does come down to this idea of risk. For some reason, you are vul- I mean, there are many reasons. I think you, we are very vulnerable when improvising because you could fail spectacularly if you view it from that perspective. Yeah. And you can be judged for that failure. I mean, you know, this is true with rapping. So if you're not somebody who raps and all of a sudden somebody tells you to rap, boy, is that a self-conscious thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And then, yeah, and then if they tell you furthermore, not just to rap, but to make up the rap on the spot, you can just feel yourself choking up and f- like freezing. And that's the exact opposite of what I think the true freestyle rapper does, right? So they, they, they are able to generate really endless rhymes to a beat using a keyword that they're told in an instant before they actually put it into a rhyme. I mean, it's an amazing feat of, of sort of neurobiology. And they get that comfort, that expertise through doing it many, many, many times. That's exactly right. Which is what the classical musicians get their freedom from, their freedom to create within the confines of the music and the timing of the notes. They, they get the ability to have such technical control over that, that they're free then 
to play it in, I think, almost an infinite number of ways. I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, if you think about other versions of life where there's this balance between practice, preparation, and creativity. So I think about athletics quite a bit. You know, if you watch Michael Jordan or if you watch Steph Curry, you know, some of these very, like, creative basketball players, what are they doing behind the scenes? They're working, they're dribbling, they're doing fundamentals, they're, mm. they're shooting free throws over and over again. They're doing these very basic, repetitive things so that when they're on the court, I think it just allows them to unleash, you know, you know that's so ingrained in them that they don't have to devote too much of their brain activity towards that. Now they can go off in all of these unexpected creative ways. And I think a lot of chefs are the same way. You know, why do you go to culinary school? Not so you can follow recipes. It's so that in the end, you don't need to look at a recipe. You can just take any ingredient that's given to you at any moment and figure out how to do something delicious with it. It's, it's improvising with food and flavors and smells. And so I think there's so many different human versions of creativity. And the reason why that's the case is because they're all mediated through our sane brain. And so whether it's athletics, whether it's cooking, whether it's comedy, whether it's rap, whether it's music, whether it's classical, whether it's jazz, I think the, there's a core universal creative substrate in the brain that allows us to do all of these things. Depending on the nature of the task and how spontaneous it is, it may phase in and out. But from my experiments, I'm convinced that one of the core attributes is the ability to turn off your brain and how quickly and how deeply you can do that. Do you think you have found a way to become more creative in your own life? So, you know, it's funny. I've um, People ask me whether I'm sort of demystifying this to myself, and I would say, no, not at all. I mean, like, music is still amazingly fun. And I, I view it, the analogy I use is um, flying, if you study the physics of flight and aerodynamics of an airplane, that doesn't mean that it's still not magical when you take off in an airplane. I mean, it's still like, wow, I'm, I'm flying. And you may think of all of the science behind it, and I can think about the neurobiology of jazz, but you know what? It's still John Coltrane playing saxophone. When I listed, I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. For myself, I think I've understood a couple of things. One is that I can get better at turning my brain off. And I'm very self-conscious in certain creative tasks. I know this because people have put me on the spot a number of times <laughs> because of my research. Right. And, and actually speaking about my research is an area where I'm trying to be very um, careful about what I say, but not so careful that I can't talk about it in a comfortable, natural way. And so there's a, a balance there. And then also as a surgeon. So, you know, my day job is really as a surgeon. And I will tell you that Doing surgery is very similar to high-level musicianship. It's very similar because you ingrain, you overlearn all of these basic physical, mechanical movements and tasks so that you can then handle a problem that you've never seen before that has never been really, you know, every, every patient's body is a little bit different and you're kind of problem-solving your way through surgery in a way that begins to feel very much like playing a musical instrument. Yeah, I was surprised to hear surgeons say once in a while, the parts of the body aren't always exactly where they're supposed to be. I mean, where's the there's damn, a lot of nuance. Where's the damn heart here? I <laughs> no, there's there's a lot of nuance in all of it. You know, everybody's face is different, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think that it's it's people think of surgery as a very prescriptive plan thing, which it is, but there's also a lot of problem solving and a lot of you having to um, have mastered the craft so that you're free to not be um, beholden to the rules 
every moment of the day and when you're doing surgery. You have to sometimes make up a new solution to something. When you were talking about speaking spontaneously about your work, which I've seen you do on, on YouTube, and you're wonderful at it. You, you really communicate with the audience. You're, you're talking to somebody and not just talking in general. It's a, it's a pleasure to see. And I compare that to many scientists who want to make sure they say everything exactly correctly, which they should, because it's a serious business and it's not, it's not a, a grandma's recipe where you say a little bit of this and a pinch of that. <laughs> you know, you know the, the, way I, the way I view that is that there's a time and place for everything. So when you're speaking about, when you're speaking to another human, it's not the same as writing a scientific manuscript. Right. You know, if somebody wants a scientific manuscript, they can read the manuscript. But if they want to talk to me about what I think about the scientific manuscript, I better be able to say something that's not just what I wrote. Well, what I'm interested in is the difference in communication, the effectiveness of communication between when you read your paper to an audience and when you tell them about it face to face. And it can be the same audience. And if you get into an area that has to be perfectly precise, then you can look at the page or put a slide up. But the, the offense, in my mind, is to turn your back on the audience and read your slides, which, which to me is not communication, it's excommunication. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, scientists, we're not trained in communication. Um, we sort of hope that by, by almost like a spillover effect that we're able to do it. But I think that actually science, there's a reason. If you think that there's maybe a lack of trust or a loss of um, belief or, uh, you know, science has always worked, right? Like we've advanced as a society worldwide from science. I mean, it's, it's undeniable. You, how can you deny science? It's like how we get to the truth. Yet there's so many science skeptics out there. And I think part of that is because we as scientists haven't done a great job of communicating why science matters. They think of it as something that happens in a lab but doesn't pertain to them as human beings that day of life. Whereas I think of it very differently. I think that scientists, like musicians, like artists, we're all trying to approach the truth. Scientists do it by generating knowledge, and that knowledge is sort of um, incrementally added to this growing body of knowledge. And it's this, if you really adhere to the scientific method, you're agnostic to whether you're right or wrong. You're trying to get to the truth. You don't have a bias about whether you want a certain truth. You're just trying to get to the truth. And so I, it's my hope that as we kind of understand this as a society, that scientists, and maybe maybe not every scientist is great at communicating and that's okay. Um, in the same way, like every mathematician, maybe some should just be great at being math and then other people can talk about it <laughs> once they understand what that person came up with. I think a lot of times that's true with science, but I think we have to be better at sort of translating. There's a language to this. You have to be able to translate what we found so that, you know, you can care about it. And, you know, I've had to talk to my family who's not, they don't do what I do. I've had to talk to students that don't, they don't do what I do and make them care about my work by bringing it to the level that um, affects them as humans. And which you do beautifully. At the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, we've trained about 20,000 scientists. And we start with improvisation exercises to establish the ability and the belief that you actually can connect with an audience. Yeah. 
And I imagine that those scientists have to also learn how to shut down their brains. They have to learn to turn off their self-monitoring when they're criticizing themselves. There's, there's a self-judgment that happens. That, that's right. And that's, why, that's what interested me about reading your paper versus telling it to an audience. I'm wondering if you had somebody in an MRI machine and had them read something to another person another person in another room and then have them tell another person about the same thing but without reading it, what what would you see, what activity would be different in the brain? I'm wondering if social centers in the brain are quieted during the reading whereas all of the uh, meaning and motor centers are just as busy but not the social ones because you're connected to the words rather than to another person. I, I think that's right. And, you know, there's a directionality to these things, um, you know, especially with language, that whether you're outputting the language versus receiving the language. And I think the, the interactive or social version of it, the, the key advantage is that you have to take in as much information as, as you have to put out. Mm, um, that's so true, yeah. Yeah, good communication is listening well. Exactly. Big, exactly. Yeah, you have to respond. Element. And so, you know, I, anyway, thank you for the kind words. I have to tell you, I've, I'm not somebody who have, has felt comfortable speaking about anything publicly, except that I was um, put in a position where I was asked to. And I thought, you know, I would really like someone to understand why this work matters. Mm. So I'm going to try to explain it in a way that it, when we're done, you feel like, okay, that actually does matter. That's so interesting. That impulse to really ignite another person's interest in it is a very social impulse. It's not, it's not saying, I have this information, I'm going to broadcast it, you can receive it any way you want, or not, I don't care, I'm here to tell you. you know, <laughs> it's different from, I'm here to excite you. It is. And, you know, I, I tend to be kind of, or I, tr I try to regard my own work pretty critically, but also modestly, because there's nothing, it's not like a series of science experiments are going to unravel human creativity, which has existed, you know, forever. I think what it will do is help us understand how it's possible that human beings can be creative. And it'll, it'll add a little bit of knowledge to this like grand puzzle of, of human nature, which is that we generate new ideas and we create things. And that's always been the case. And it's an amazing facet. I think personally, it's how human beings have, have survived. I would hope that people understand that creativity is not something that you just see in musicians or in a concert hall and on, on recordings. I mean, this is an everyday biological behavior that if we didn't have it, we would just be gone as a species. It's just, you cannot exist as a species like, like humans have without being able to generate something novel. It's fundamental to who we are. Well, you're right. We've only just scratched the surface and I, I, I look forward to a time when we might run into each other and be able to spend more time talking about this. Well, thank you. Anytime. But we end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. Roughly to do with communication. First question. What do you wish you really understood? Wow. Um, I would say love. Oh, great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Humbly, because that assumes that you think you have yours right. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? 
Oh boy, you know, in the hospital, you get asked a lot of weird things. Um, but yeah, no, I uh, I can't even answer. Some of them are just so, so wildly inappropriate under anesthesia. I can't even go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, how do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know if you can. That's interesting. You, you, you just surrender. That's good. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? I've thought about this a lot. And what I think about is I really try to understand that that person might be as uncomfortable as I might be. And mm. I think, what would, I, what would that person potentially like for me to know about them? And try so to get how do you, there. How do you get there? With open-ended questions that are reveal enough about myself to, to suggest to that person that they can also open up a little bit of themselves. Uh, uh, yeah, very interesting. Next to last, what gives you confidence? I think that I'm prepared. So, you know, I think about this in surgery a lot because you have to have confidence in surgery, but you can't be arrogant. And if I have confidence in it, it's because I'm prepared because I've been studying and preparing and thinking about this for my whole life. And now I'm ready to do what I have to do. It's, a, it's authenticity. It's, it's substance. Last question. What book changed your life? A Brief History of Time. Huh. You know, it's funny because I'd always looked into the sky and thought, how can it be possibly true that it goes on and on forever? And suddenly reading that book made me realize that there's ways to think about this that are not just sort of like intellectualizing falsely, but to really think accurately, mathematically about what could exist in the universe. And, and you know, in a way, the smallness of being human. You know, this has been a wonderful time for me because you're so creative in your thinking and in the way you talk. And the whole time, your prefrontal cortex sounds like it's been snoring away. <laughs> well, thank you so much and in, in, in your interest in my work and in, t in talking to me. And also, I have to thank you for all of your work over the years. I mean, what a pleasure for me to speak to you. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Charles Lim is chief of the University of San Francisco's Division of Head and Neck Surgery, specializing in the treatment of hearing disorders. He's also the director of the university's cochlear implant center, and he's also a talented saxophone player. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with my old friend, the journalist Ken Oletta. His new book, Hollywood Ending, R.B. Weinstein and the Culture of Silence, 
is a devastating portrayal of how Weinstein exploited his enormous power as a major film producer to abuse the women who worked for him. Part of what my book is about is not just the sexual abuse that Harvey committed. It's, it's also about the enablers who enabled him to commit it, who knew and should have done something about it and didn't. But it's also about power. He had enormous power and these women were sitting there and saying, oh my God, Harvey Weinstein can destroy not just my career, but my life. I'm in the movie business. I want to be in the movie business. He dominates in that world. And he knew how to use his power and abuse his power to, to frighten people. Ken Arletta had his portrait of a man Ken calls a thug and who Ken himself almost came to blows with next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program. The world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.